I've done that exact thing to students. I've devalued their position, which is the worst thing I've ever done as a teacher, Yeah, is not try to meet the students where they are. In the system that we have, we can't really expect students to be willing to fail because there's really no incentive to be a risk taker. Failing has a natural benefit, but in the system of school, you can't really, I mean, it seems like, I I think in, in fact, because school is life you can you know benefit from failing but it seems like failing is a bad thing always welcome to the unexamined education my name is jonathan ali and as always i'm joined by my friend sean dalrymple in our conversations we draw upon our experience as educators to gain insight into the essence of teaching and learning we hope that our discussions inspire and benefit you whether you are a teacher administrator student parent or anyone else that understands the importance of education in the life of the human being Good morning, John. Good morning, Sean. So, John, I wanted to ask you, why did you decide on English uh, in college? When I first started college full-time after I got out of the military, I my initial choice wasn't English. It was uh, nursing because my brother was starting to be a nurse and my father was a registered nurse and also my stepmother. So we had a family of nurses and it seemed like a very practical choice because they say that you, know, you can easily find a job and the pay is pretty good. So I started with that as nursing as my major. But as I started attending classes that first semester – Imagining that this is the path that I'm on, I found that I was not motivated to study. I wasn't interested in in my classes. Uh, It wasn't intellectually stimulating to me. So I changed my major to English because I felt pretty sure that if I did that, I would become interested in what I was studying. That's the the thing that I wanted to kind of get at is with English, because I feel like we both kind of approached it the same way is that it seemed like a subject area that was rich and rich enough And also diverse enough that like surely, like surely it could sustain interest for years. But it's also, I think, one of these majors that gets maybe a little bit maligned for how impractical it is, Mm -hmm. unless you're going to be an English teacher. For me, that calculation and that decision in, in the university was a good decision because it for sure, like English over time, the English major, which is kind of a silly name for it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yields great riches uh, through the study of of literature. Yeah, yeah, and I would say just from another point of view, besides the content of the the study and and the subject matter itself, just the fact that I was able to choose something that I wanted to do, right, as opposed to the thing that that I understood to be more practical, made me interested in even those same subjects that before, as a nursing major, I wasn't interested in. For example, as a nursing major, I had to take some biology classes. And as a nursing major, I felt like I had to take these classes because they were related to this thing that I chose out of practicality, right? But somehow, and it's, it's very strange, like it's a psychological just subtlety, but as an English major, I felt like this person who, who was pursuing knowledge, right? Who was pursuing understanding of the world, which could also happen as a nursing major. I'm not saying it's, you know, something particular to being an English major, but it was because it was what I wanted to do, what I was interested in, in and what I was curious about. Right. And that probably explains why you went the philosophy route as well for a little while is yes the, the same kind of approach of like you're pursuing knowledge in a way that is appropriate to how you can understand the world right my decision uh, to be an english major was an excellent decision but it did take me years for me to really appreciate how much it had given me that being said 
it seems that my job when I'm an English teacher mm -hmm. is to, at the very first meeting of my, you know, of the students is to ruin <laughs> the subject and this course of study that I have found uh, so rich. Right. I think I, I know what you mean very clearly by ruining it for them, but can you give, give some examples? Yeah, absolutely. You know, over the years, I've probably, I bet I've had a hundred students come up and say to me, I don't really want to analyze this text. I just enjoy this, the story. Yeah. And I feel like analyzing it ruins it. And they don't say exactly that way, but that's the sentiment. And it's yeah. clearly expressed, and it has been expressed by a number of students vocally. And I imagine there's plenty of silent students out there who just wish we would read a good story yeah. and be done with it. And I always find myself in the position, well, I shouldn't say I always, but early on in my teaching, I found myself in the position of defending this approach in high school to really analyze the text, yeah. to really understand what's working in the text and how it's working. So I would give defenses like, well, you know, I know that you think <laughs> that you'd enjoy the story, yeah. but really, if you start analyzing this and unpacking it and seeing what's going on behind the plot, then that's when you will really enjoy the story. Right. I realized, unfortunately, after I'd done this song and dance for way too many students, I realized much later that what I was doing was I was telling them to skip over an important part of their growth in appreciating literature. In fact, if you tell a student or if you don't allow a young person to go through a phase of just enjoying the stories, then you really don't have a you don't have good odds on them ever appreciating anything deeper about right. literature. Yeah. And actually, teachers find themselves in this situation, I think, as a rule, which is basically in a, a position of having an appreciation for something, some subject matter, some area of knowledge or some skills, and feeling this urgency or this need to convince your students that they should also care about this thing that this is important, it's valuable to them. And it's really hard. It's like a sales pitch that you have to give. And it's really difficult to sell something to someone who they don't recognize their need for that thing or the value of it. And and you're just trying to find some angle to where you can, you know, quote unquote, hook them. And this is even part of teacher training to a large extent is how to design a lesson to where you can you can establish that for the students. And that's good. Like that that shows that awareness of how important that is, that that the students, in order to to engage in it and benefit in it, they have to see value in it. But like you're saying, it's not like the question is, can you just skip straight to that to that state? Right. Like from a state of seeing little or no value in something, seeing it as a sort of waste of time, right? Like analyzing literature that through, you know, the teacher uh, giving you a song and dance that suddenly you'll be so convinced that you'll be able to engage in that in an authentic way. I, I think we see this exemplified in pretty much every major course of study mm -hmm. where we ask the students to jump to this highly theoretical plane and enjoy everything from the ground up after after we do this great theory. Right. And it's so disappointing when you're faced with those. For example, if you have some piece of literature to, to read with the students and you you make your case in the best way you can, you know, that this is something that this is a really important work of literature and there's a lot to benefit from reading this and analyzing it. And then you see it just falls flat. <laughs> Maybe there's one or two students who are excited, you know, <laughs> at that point. But for the rest of them, you know, in, in my experience, even in the best circumstances, it remains just the sort of, OK, it's just something we have to do. 
even though there are those cases where the students are excited about reading something, but that excitement about a, a story, right, about characters or some plot premise, it doesn't, like you're saying, I mean, we're just, I'm sorry if I'm repeating the same thing, but it doesn't translate directly into interest in engaging in, in the analysis uh, of literature. Well, and this has been, and and I kind of want to jump in with a little bit of like of a memory here, is that I, when you're talking, I'm thinking about, well, why didn't I, you know, why wasn't literature ruined for me uh, when I was growing up? It was typical back in the uh, 90s when, when I was in high school to have the same approach. Of, yeah. We got to uncover this. And I think the reason it wasn't ruined for me is, well, there were two things. One is that I had a teacher that I really respected who told the class one time in a very dismissive and rude way, Shakespeare is wasted on you guys. <laughs> and, <laughs> right. And like for me, that that was the exact thing that needed to be said to like preserve Shakespeare, put Shakespeare in a box yeah. and set him aside and realize that like, because I respected this teacher, I knew that I needed to deal with Shakespeare at another time. Yeah. Uh, I believed him. I actually, I, I took him at his word as that, what was happening here with trying to teach Shakespeare was a, was we were missing out on a lot of uh, understanding. And but then you, I think you the just other weren't thing, ready for it. That idea, right? I just wasn't ready for it. He was basically that's exactly what he was saying. He was saying yeah. you are not ready for Shakespeare, and so I think that allowed me to put Shakespeare sort of aside until much later. And then going into college, while I was pretty sure. I was going to be a teacher already. I was not really sure what area of study, but the thing that got me through my first like couple of years was some good books. And so mm -hmm. uh, it was just being able to do that part of education where I'm just reading books and enjoying books. Yeah. So I, I think it easily uh, gets ruined for, you know, that, that course of study gets ruined for a lot of students. And in the same way, other courses of study can get ruined for students. So I could give an, ex an example from my own experience with math. The fact that I became an English major shows that I was mostly growing up interested in language and stories and, and um, writing. Those kinds of things really appealed to me, and I, I spent my personal free time working on those things. So I, the class that I enjoyed the most was English. The class that I felt the most frustration with was, was always my math classes. And it started with probably algebra or even maybe pre-algebra and lasted through geometry. And I took pre-calculus and, and took calculus as a senior in high school. And what I was always faced with was that the idea of math was really appealing to me. Like I always felt that it was this kind of pure conceptual space. And, and I really liked that. Even in calculus, although I didn't understand anything, barely anything that was going on, and I couldn't perform <laughs> barely any of the operations, and I did terrible on the AP exam at the end of the year. Despite all of that, the idea of being in a calculus class and, and flipping through the pages of the calculus book, I felt really, it was very, you know, appealing. I wished that I could understand calculus, and I wished that I could, that, that I could do these, these uh, operations and solve these problems. But then after high school, and this actually happened while I was in the military, I started taking some college classes and, and I took a college algebra class and, you know, not to brag or anything, but I aced it. And I think at that point, I just, it was like finally my chance to learn this thing and focus on this thing on my own terms, right? Right, right. And, uh... And I was really able to enjoy it. It was like the only class I was taking because I was just going part time. So I just signed up for one class for that semester and I really focused on it. And I, and I really wanted to 
learn it and master it. And even to the extent that it was either after that class, my memory is not too clear on this now, or before I took that class, I had I bought a, a college algebra textbook from a used bookstore. And I, I would go through the, you know, the lessons and the units on my own and do the problems and everything. And I really enjoyed it. Like it was really rewarding. It's just amazing to me that that, that same content and material that was the bane of my existence in in high school because I knew there was a quiz coming there was a test coming I didn't feel like doing the homework it was just this you know this pressure to engage in this thing and I, and I couldn't take the time to try to really understand it or to, to try to really enjoy what I thought was appealing about it I couldn't right but then once I had the opportunity to do that it happened for, now I you know I didn't go that far in college mathematics <laughs> because I was an English major and, but even now like I'm currently watching some YouTube videos videos presented by this mathematician and they're really interesting and I wish I had more time to to you know to pursue that it's normal and expected for someone who gets out of the household gets independent for a couple of years for the real drive to try to step into education on his own terms I think right. that's that's expected and unfortunately right. the, the way things are designed now for most students like their their first opportunity to do that is like right when they're about to get out of college it's funny that you mentioned that because i i've often thought that if i had gone straight to college out of high school this couldn't have happened for me right it would have just been a continuation of that same same pressure same expectation same state of mind that i was in about going to class that i'm i need to succeed on the test and on the you know homework and everything like that Right. It was it was because I was in in this moment in my life where no one was expecting me to do it, right? No one cared <laughs> whether I went and signed up for a college algebra class or not because I was working full-time doing something that kind of just comes with a certain amount of societal recognition of its value, right? Right. So I could have just focused completely on that and just done that job. So this was like this thing that was mine, right? It belonged to me. It was something that I was deciding to do. And most of the people around me weren't doing anything like that. In fact, they thought I was weird for having a college algebra book, even though I wasn't in, in a class. And then it wasn't weird to go and take college classes, but it was still strange amongst, you know, the, my peers to enjoy them or to, you know, get some kind of intellectual enjoyment out of them. Right. Because for most people and this, I would say that it would, the wrong conclusion would be to, to say that you're unique you're a unique individual for enjoying it. I think the conclusion I draw from this is is that the expectation, not to say you're not unique, John. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. (laughs) You're you're a unique and wonderful person. But the the societal uh, expectation, not societal, but what education had done to your peers was to make them think, isn't it great that we don't have to do this? Exactly, yeah. And I've experienced yeah. this, you know, in, in other situations too. I don't want to get into the story of this, but when I was studying in the Islamic seminary and everyone there is is apparently there because of a deep internal motivation and, and none of them are being forced to be there. It's all a choice of everyone and studying that subject that would be most meaningful to them. But I saw the exactly exactly the same thing there is, you know, being happy when class is canceled, uh, <laughs> trying to avoid right. tests, <laughs> avoiding studying, you know, all yeah. the same habits that you see. I, I think that and the conclusion that I've always come to is these habits are created by the education, by school. Basically, they're, they're, right. they're created by school. I have to tell a story about a student of mine who was a fascinating young man who, for whatever reason, he started sharing all of this information with me about lizards and snakes. And he was really in 
to lizards and snakes. And he was like a sophomore in high school at yeah. the time. And he said that what he wanted to do with his life was be a herpetologist, mm-hmm. which was a term I wasn't aware of, but I now realize that it's lizards and snakes. It's, it's the, <laughs> the logos of lizards and snakes. Right. So I asked him, how are you doing in biology? This is a natural but stupid question to ask, but yeah. I, I asked it anyway. Well, or, or I said something like that, or you must love biology. Or, yeah. Um, I framed it in some way. And the reason this really sticks with me, this this young man said, no, I'm doing terrible in biology. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I'm, uh, again, I was at the age where I, uh, I didn't value enough what he was doing. And I sort of directed him. I'm like, well, you need to probably really buckle down in biology if you think you're going to be a herpetologist there, young man. <laughs> right. <laughs> and... And who knows? Who I, I I I need to try to track him down to find out what's happened to him because it's it's been plenty of time that we should have a sense of where he ended up. But the problem that I see in school now, reflecting on that, is it's, there's a kid who was so into snakes and lizards that it was coming out in English class, and he could not stop discussing these things and all these interesting like facts about these animals. And honestly, like I didn't have a high degree of interest in the the facts that he was sharing. I, of course, right. have a, a great interest in, in his own plight as a human being. Right. But that should we should we have to let things like that carry someone as far as possible, because right. when you want to start talking about mitosis, like you want to make darn sure that if you're trying to actually get somebody who's a trained, well, like educated herpetologist who has the biology background, you got to make sure that they've gotten down to the, say, mitosis level. That's the thing I'm focusing on for some reason. You got (laughs) to make sure they got down to the mitosis level through a genuine interest all the way, especially when you're dealing with young young adults, where interest is the primary motivating factor uh, for any true study. When When you get older, you can realize that you can take these steps to into this theoretical land, realizing that it's going to help you in your in your profession. But that takes a heck of a lot of maturity. Right, right. But even just you know, I would say that for human beings in general, even let's say a mature adult who can buckle down and study some subject matter, master something that they don't really have an innate interest in, because they know this is important for some other thing that they're trying to achieve, even that person, the difference between the kind of learning that they're going to do in that situation and the kind of learning that they would do if they were motivated by curiosity or or genuine interest are, are worlds apart, right? Yeah. The way that you can learn things through through genuine interest is it's almost like it's it's not right to call that and the other thing also learning because they're so different in that right. way. And and I agree like the this student the example of the student that you're that you explained, it's not like you're saying he shouldn't be introduced to biology or uh, he shouldn't be put in a biology class. I think the question the the issue is that if you see that this expectation that biology should be something that also interests him, something that he also excels at and succeeds at, if you see that that's not happening, the important thing is to help him preserve that love that he has for herpetology and not push biology at the expense of that or not that that wouldn't be a casualty of this expectation uh, of taking biology and being interested in biology 
he should just know it's something that's there. And so that if he gets to the point where he could engage in it at that level of interest, then it wouldn't be his own ignorance standing in the way of that. Right. So, yeah, I don't know what that looks like, you know, in practical terms in a school, but it might just look like a very, you know, brief introduction to some topic without going into a lot of detail about it. For example, let's suppose that a school is interested in the student actually learning biology. Right. Yeah. If a student is failing in biology, okay, you want to obviously look at ways for the student to improve. But if you have a student who's already interested in something that's clearly biological, Right. Then you've got this tremendous like foothold to and, and what's the risk? Like he's failing already. Why not just see what happens if you say, you know what, just study the lizards of Texas for the right. next six weeks and <laughs> right. tell yeah. me every you know, give me a report, everything that's interesting about it. Right, right. Yeah, and exactly. What's like the, what's the risk? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it might make you look at your biology course and wonder what's wrong with this course that someone who clearly has an inclination and affinity for topics related to it is not succeeding in it, right? Yeah. Exactly like like if you, you know, as an English teacher, if you have students who come to your class and they're clearly interested in stories, they get excited by stories. And you know that these stories contain all of the literary components that that make it great literature, but they just don't want to sit and analyze them. Right. Right. Then it should make us question, why are we pushing that then? Why don't we just allow them to read it, <laughs> you know, like meet them where they are rather than than devalue where they are in, in, in this attempt to push them towards our expectation of where they should be. Right. And the number of times, and I, I feel like the last few minutes, I'm sort of like harping on like this <laughs> thing about biology. It's not about biology. I've done that exact thing to students. I've devalued yeah. their position, which is the worst thing I've ever done as a teacher. Yeah. Is not try to meet the students where they are. Right. And just get frustrated that they're not there. You know, they're like, I can't believe you're 16 and you're having trouble reading whatever text is, you know, presented mm-hmm. in front of you. Well, hell, that's not going to get them anywhere for me to just right. show grave disappointment. Right. Tests, grades, and assessments. I think there's a lot of value in assessing. I'll say this at the front end of it there's a yeah. lot of value in it. It gives feedback. You can say, we tried to go over this stuff in class. Did you learn it? And I'm seeing evidence here that you did or did not learn it. But of course, that's not what the conversation is hardly ever. The conversation Mm -hmm. is, here's a test. You have to get a high grade for you to be considered a good student. Did you get a high grade? Yes or no? And that like that's it's been simplified and students are routinely dehumanized through this procedure. Yeah. And if you if you want to know the one thing that I think for all the things in education that that can be improved, one thing we have to look at is this overvaluing of a number and how we're associating associating it with a a student's effort, potential and accomplishments. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I'll give you another example that's that's uh, related to that is the a lot of the time that I spent as an English teacher in high school was uh, preparing students for the uh, for an AP what was it language and composition exam yeah and it's a pretty intense exam and one of the things or like about half of the exam or, or more and I don't know in terms of scoring it I don't remember is uh, they have to write three timed essays. And there are three different types of, of, of timed essays. Is that, it was three, right? Yeah, it was, <laughs> I forgot. it was three. Yeah. yeah. 
And so yeah. now there was a scoring rubric and, you know, a system of scoring between like one and nine. Correct me if any of these facts are wrong because it's been yeah. a long time. But by my memory, you've got it right for the okay. early, early <laughs> okay. aughts. Right, right. So at that time, this, is, this was the format of the test. And so, you know, we had to write a lot of essays in order to try to improve their skills. But one thing now when I look back on it, I wanted, you know, as many of my students to write well. And, and there was real quality difference between the, the, the essays that would receive seven, eights, and nines, just particularly eights and nines, that when you wrote, read those examples that the college board provides, you see that these are, these are really good writers, right? And these are quality essays. Yeah. And I always felt like that most of the students couldn't get there because, and this is, this is well known, this wasn't just my insight, but because the writing is too formulaic, right? They weren't willing to take risks. But I could see the dilemma that a lot of these students faced, a lot of them who I felt like had the potential to write like that, is because they didn't want to take any risks. Because right. You're you saying know, their writing, the, the students who couldn't reach that level... They yeah. were being too formulaic. Yeah, the students who couldn't reach that level were being too formulaic because what you would see is these highest scoring essays were not formulaic. You know, they were right. pretty inspired, pretty creative, insightful, right? Now, so what I saw with a lot of my students who were AP students, they're very concerned about their grades, concerned about their GPA. Probably the expectation of their parents is that they bring home good grades. And there was just a real lack of willingness to take risks yeah. and and to fail. And And the thing about improving in your writing is I guess really it's just the whole thing is against them in the first place because the fact that there's this timed exam, you know, and you only get one shot at it. Right. Like right. that already discourages you from having a risk taking mentality. So I, I really think that the ones who scored high, they were just like the naturally gifted writers mostly. But I don't think it had to be that way. I think a lot more students, a lot more you know, teenagers have the potential of writing like that. But to improve like that, you have to take it on as your own and be willing to risk and not worry about what grade you're going to get and, and those kinds of things. You have to be ready, willing to fail, basically. And, and in, the, in the system that we have, we can't really expect students to be willing to fail because there's really no incentive to be a risk taker. Failing has a natural benefit, but in the system of school, you can't really, I mean, it seems like, I, I think, in, in fact, because school is life, you can you know benefit from failing but it seems like failing is a bad thing always right it, <laughs> i'm i'm sitting there thinking about like what what in a ch- child's curriculum or child's educational experience teaches anything about failure and it's the things that jump to mind to me are things like recess and gym class and it's right. like these 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 like physical things yeah if you're playing a game of dodgeball or something right yeah and you get you get hit by the ball and you're out that's just like that's part of it is and and there's no real hard feelings about that over time and we we see students really enjoy games like that yeah but uh, but we don't seem to ever want to translate that kind of ability to take a hit, to be out, and to just come right back. Like, that's, I don't feel like we're doing much to encourage that in the academics. Right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's because of quantifying failures, right? And instead of just, and even just calling it a failure, right? Like, (laughs) right. right. If the PE coach was keeping stats (laughs) on how many times this kid's been hit out, and he like reports it at the end, he says, and your grade child now because you were out so many times <laughs> right. is 50 yeah uh, you know that that would Here's, be ridiculous yeah. i just i just a theory just occurred to me i guess this would have to be thought you know examined more deeply but it's it's maybe 
when what's most or when when the greatest expectation is just participation, which I think you know in PE and <laughs> things like that, that is <laughs> right, the case. Right. In that case, then then the a person actually has the ability to experiment and experience it. But when when the expectation is not just participation, but it's a certain level of of achievement that's defined, you know, in in, the, in a very specific and narrow way, then there's no freedom there, right? You just have to do what's going to get you that success. You just have to find out, identify what does success look like here, and and then you just try to replicate that. It's it's formulaic again. Like it's the 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 student, the stereotypical student who is concerned about grades just want to know what do i need to do to get an a right, uh, right. and i had these students too they would say what do i need to do to get a nine on this <laughs> on this essay <laughs> right. right yeah and i would say well yeah. <laughs> you know it's not a, there's no formula for it you have to be you know inspired that's what you have to do <laughs> you get okay, these honest I... kids yeah <laughs> right. like yeah at least they're not presenting any uh, facade about <laughs> why they're there Right. You know, it's yeah. just like, yeah, they, they've decided to just cut through all of it. And <laughs> right. <laughs> where's, the, where's the nine? Where's the A? Yeah. You know, right. Show me and the then, checklist. <laughs> exactly. And then you can't, it, you know, if you're the type of teacher who you want to inspire the students, you want them to do things because they feel interested in it and inspired by it. That's like the worst thing a student can come and ask you. Like if you <laughs> like I had experiences where I would present something and try to do it in a way where the, the students themselves would, would realize the, you know, the interest they have in it. And then afterwards, a student come up, and say, OK, you know, I understood everything you said, but what do I have to do to get an A? <laughs> right. right. <laughs> you were trying to prompt like. A, a true, genuine inquiry into right. something. <laughs> and they come up and say, what do I need to do to get an A? Well, have a genuine, like, inquiry and study. <laughs> right, right. So, yeah. And then they're really confused after, after if you say something like right. that. Right, <laughs> right, yeah. And, and it's, it's disheartening. It can be disheartening as a teacher because, yeah, you're dealing with so many things that have gone uh, off the rails for – or actually – you're the thing that's off the rails for the student, yeah, right? Uh, and then, then you're you're a, you as a teacher, you're like, God, so many other things have gone wrong for this, and yeah, it's a terribly confusing <laughs> situation. <laughs> yeah, and best of luck to any teacher going through anything like this. Yes, you're you're. I, I want to clarify, uh, teachers, you're not dehumanizing the kids by giving them grades. That's the that's the system. That's the way the grades are reported back and forth. That's not anything but the product of us moving grades back and forth and making that uh, the uh, a factor in how we decide what a student can do. Right. But but yeah, you can you can be a part of like making that easier on the kid. That's for right. damn sure. Yeah, of course. Our purpose here isn't to make teachers feel bad about what they're doing in class and things like that. But it's just to for us all to reflect on the role that we play in this this overall system and reflect on that in an honest way, right? Not sort of become a supporter of it just because we're part of it, but be critical members of that and see what role we can, what, what can we do in our classrooms that will at least ease a bit of that negative pressure uh, with the students and and then also amongst one another it can be it, see that's that's the risk of talking about these things really is because the more you focus on them the more you can start to feel a little hopeless about it but at the same time if you don't focus on it at all then you also might as well be hopeless 
<laughs> right? Because you're just doing what you're just doing, performing the job mindlessly. Well, yeah, and you see that. I mean, you definitely see that sometimes. And I mean, I've I've certainly had years where I've kind of turned off my my higher level conscious states of mind during the school day uh, because I need to I needed to get through the job. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, there's, I, I, you know, recognize that and I know you recognize that. So although we, you know, it's easy for us on our podcast to (laughs) discuss these things as if, you know, we could laugh about them and, you know, and, and point out how uh, wrongheaded they are. But at the same time, teachers are people who go to work and they do a job that's an important job and that shouldn't be forgotten, you know, just because of these different problems in the system. Yeah. So I think we've done enough letting teachers know that they're, they're good people. Now change some damn things. Yes. <laughs> Come on. Like this <laughs> right. is this is crazy. If you want critical thinkers, be a critical thinker. Right. Right. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is tough. It's a tough job. Um and uh and I have nothing but respect for the teachers. Yeah. All right, Sean. Well, I think some conclusions we can come to based on our conversation, some insights that, that we have we can gain from this are, one, the importance of genuine interest in learning and that the curriculum and the educational expectations in a course or a school should never be put at odds with genuine interest because if you crush that genuine interest, then you basically crush the potential for real learning. And also the need when we, as teachers, when we have students who aren't exactly where we would like them to be in terms of their level of engagement with the with the subject matter to not react to that with frustration or disappointment or or a sense of urgency but rather to just meet them where they are it's helpful to think of students as on a path that they've chosen themselves and it's a natural path it's a, something that all human beings do is they they go on this path of learning and when we meet them in the classroom they've already been on this path for some time and going in a certain direction with, a, with their own motivations and interests and curiosity and needs. So our job as educators, our job as teachers is to see where they are on their path and help them on their path rather than putting them on some different course that, that we think is better for them, which is far removed from the path that they've already chosen. Yeah, I really like that, John. Thank you to our listeners. And thanks to you, Sean, for joining me for another great conversation. And we look forward to the next one. All right. Thanks, John. Thanks, John.